Hey y'all, this is Benny, the host of the Last Week at Podcast. Before we really get into this week's episode, I just wanted to say that it's been great fun for me and my co-host Mayank to use this podcast as a medium to chat with an incredible area of guests from all over the world on a variety of topics in the cricketing universe. For a couple of amateur podcasters, this is all possible due to Spotify for podcasters. And if you want to get in on this as well, here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer, so no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then, you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. As added features, video podcasts are also now available on Spotify. And when you want to take conversations with your fans to the next level, Q&A and polls are the best way to get them talking. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. So if you have an idea for a podcast, give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com podcasters to get started. Hello and welcome to The Last Wicket, the Shardul Thakur of Cricket Podcasts. I'm your host, Benny, and whether you are a first-time or a long-time listener, I'm glad that you tuned in. It is due to listeners like you that we have been nominated for the 2021 Sports Podcast Awards in the Best Cricket Podcast category. So if you enjoy this podcast, please visit sportspodcastawards.com, register, and vote for us. If you don't enjoy this podcast, do reach out to us and let us know why. We appreciate flowers and brickbats alike. Now back to the show. We have another returning guest this week. Dr. Habib Nurbai from the University of Johannesburg in South Africa is back to discuss a paper he published recently titled Attending Boys Only Schools. Is it an incidental or a strategic contributing factor to South African cricket development and success? We had a fascinating discussion about the structure of the schooling system in South Africa why boys-only schools produce a disproportionate amount of cricket captains, and the role cricket plays in identifying and developing young South African leaders from all backgrounds. We will get to all of that and more right after this brief chat with my co-host, Mike. So for this week's What's On Your Mind uh, segment, or should I say What's On My Mind, I feel like we should uh, tighten this title first of all. Uh, let's go with what's on my mind. <laughs> so, uh, what's on my mind? I am really, I have been thinking about Saurabh Ganguly a lot, which is kind of a weird thing to say out loud. But <laughs> I, I'm, I'm. Let me just say I'm disappointed, um, and I'm talking about Ganguly, the BCCI president, not the player, not the captain, because ever since Ganguly burst on the scene in 96 and I know he did play one game in 92 I believe uh, but you know with that debut 100 and then the subsequent you know his elegance and his strokes on the offside and then he took over as captain you know the, at the height of the match fixing saga and under his leadership India unearthed some amazing players so I always have this 
undying respect for him as a player and a captain, uh, you know, regardless of any perceived faults as such. But when he was appointed, or I don't even know if he was elected, but when he became, let's go with that, when he became the board president, I had high expectations, right? Because in my mind, I'm thinking of Gongli, the captain, is now the BCCI president. That's it, Indian cricket with him and Kohli is going to be at uh, just another level altogether and nobody's going to catch up. Um, but now, January 2022, we have lost our captain uh, in all formats. And we're unclear. Let's say even, you know, Roy Sharma's obviously been appointed limited overs captain. We're not sure who's going to be the test captain. But even with Roy Sharma, like he's 35. So it's obviously not going to be super long term. So there's uncertainty in that. We had this kind of, um, you know, the, the IPL last year's IPL, or sh I should say 2020 IPL was kind of, um, you know, a big mess with half the tournament. Like we, they had to stop the tournament halfway because they hadn't thought the situation through with the COVID situation. There was no proper backup. Uh, so that was a mess. Uh, and we've talked about this before, no domestic cricket in India for two years. Women's cricket in India seems to have kind of taken a backward step. Um, and all of these talks and reports of all these rifts between Ganguly and Kohli, and it, it reminds me of the bad days, you know, before, you know, Indian cricket, you know, where it went to a higher level, you know, all these talk of rifts and uh, just this dissonance between BCCI and the players. And I'm just disappointed more than anything else because of the high expectations I had on Ganguly. And I want to be clear, I don't expect, you know, you can't expect the board president to be in charge of the team performances, right? Just because India lost the series in South Africa or India lost the ODI series in South Africa, that's not Ganguly's fault. But I feel with Ganguly, the responsibility is to make sure the the team environment or the team is in a good space. And I felt, and I feel like a lot of the things that happened in the last few months were unnecessary distractions, which made it even harder for the Indian team to succeed. And especially this nexus of Ganguly and Jay Shah, I'm not sure who is, who's in charge of whom. It, it seems very interchangeable at the moment. And it's again, back to the bad days when cricket and politics had this very unhealthy bond which just leads to more you know doubts as to what is really going on so it, it's just disappointing and that's really what's on my mind and I don't know how things are going to change um, but I hope it does because as a longtime fan of Gangli the cricketer this is kind of a sorry sight yeah it's it's interesting I um I've never been a Ganguly fan. I think people who followed me on Twitter or like talk to me about cricket know that. But um, there's multiple reasons for that. One was because of the whole way he handled the, his dropping back in 2004 or five. But also, you know, reading accounts of Indian cricket back when he was captain, like during John Wright's era. He, John Wright's book, Indian Summer, is a fantastic account where he's, you know, very upfront about who's a thorough professional and who's not. And, and Ganguly was certainly not in, in John Wright's eyes. So I've never necessarily been a Ganguly fan. And then on top of that, I remember five, six years ago, he made a statement as 
um, saying something like, I would never ask or never let my daughter play cricket, you know? So uh, for somebody like that to be president, I didn't necessarily have high hopes. Um, having said that, I think Indian cricket's strength is based on all the people who do, do the hard work, who do the hard right. yards, whether, you know, people, talent spotters who are going to under 15 games and trying to find people or scouts um, uh, or, you know, just coaches at, at various levels. And I think those people make India's strength, uh, make India the team that it is. And that hasn't necessarily changed a lot. Um, what has changed, of course, yeah, the support or the lack of it for women's cricket is, is disappointing. There were people in the last administration, Anurag Thakur in particular, who was very supportive of women's cricket. And that's unfortunate. But from for men's cricket, I don't necessarily see that being a change. And um, yeah, there's probably things that went on and, and with his you know press conferences, which are uh, where he said one thing on day one and second another thing on day two. Uh, which was annoying, but I, yeah, again, I don't necessarily think that's going to do much impact our our on-field performances. And I think it's a slight blimp based on India's form and a few players missing, and we'll be back on track very, very soon. So are you saying if India had won the series, the Test Series and the ODI Series, we wouldn't really be talking too much about Ganguly's and Kohli's? I think so. I definitely think so. I think results definitely impact what we talk about. Um, but I think it's also like Kohli himself is such a big, you know, figure in Indian cricket that that is also one of the reasons why it's such a big part of the conversation. Uh, but in my mind, yeah, he's, his impact is minimal. Uh, I had minimum hopes in the first place, but that's, that's a separate, <laughs> that's a separate <laughs> tangent, I guess. Um, but well, yeah, I, I think it's there's a lot of other people who are still working really hard, and I think we'll we'll see the fruits, if not, in you know right away, hopefully in the 2023 World Cup. Well, I really hope you're right. So let's uh, hope there's some something else, any other positive thing to talk about. So what's on your mind? Uh, so I've been watching as much as possible. I've been watching the Under 19 World Cup. Um, and that's been really fun to watch. I think um, it's been handled in Trinidad and, and a lot of really good talents are, are on display. So um, what's interesting is the last two editions of the World Cup, the two teams that ended up in the final were the teams that played the most cricket. So two years, uh, four years back, India and Australia had played the most cricket. India and Australia made the final. India won under Prithvi Shaw and Shubman Gill. The year after that, um, India and Bangladesh had played the most cricket and they made the finals and then Bangladesh won. So I think it, it sort of showed that there is there is a way to make your 19 team successful, give them a lot of match practice, give them a lot of internal domestic tournaments. And India has been doing as much as possible with COVID, uh, some of those domestic tournaments, but international cricket has basically been absent for any of the under-19 teams. So right. in that sense, it's an interesting dynamic where many of these players who usually there's at least four or five who've played the Ranji Trophy before playing the under-19 World Cup, there's that number is zero this time. Um, so it's a new dynamic, but nonetheless, very, very exciting talents who are fun to watch. Um, I think I noticed at least three really interesting wrist spinners, one from Canada, um, so that was kind of cool. Uh, hopefully we'll, we'll see them a lot more on, on the international stage as they develop more. 
and uh, yeah, definitely some um, good all-rounders as well. Um, obviously, some of these, as they grow from under 19 to senior cricket, they start emphasizing on one role more than the other, um, which is the case with, let's say, Washington Sundar, who batted at four or five during the under 19 World Cup, but obviously doesn't bat that high up now. Uh, but yeah, nonetheless, it's been it's been really fun, and I think we have a pretty solid, you know, up, uh, coming few weeks. So uh, I haven't really uh, had time to watch any of the games live, but let me ask you this, and it's a very important question: Are there in the Indian team are there batters number four through seven that we can immediately transplant to the Indian senior side? Uh, probably not. I think. Th- from an under-19 level, the only guy who I can think of from the last three World Cups who was immediately ready to go to another level was probably Shubman Gill, because mm-hmm. he was just at a stage where he was, you know, such a complete batsman and nothing seemed to worry him and had already done very well in his Ranji career and his limited Ranji career and did really well after as well. I don't think we are there yet. And I think it's not necessarily because we've, you know, it's not that none of these players are good enough. It's it's the fact that, again, there's been no Ranji Trophy for two years. So it's hard to judge based on a handful of under-19 matches that each of these players have played. Uh, but having said that, there's there's uh, the son of uh, Yuvrat Singh's coach who just made 100, who was actually stand up, stand up, uh, standing in as captain because a few of the Indian players tested positive. Um, uh, Nishant, and he, he seems like a very... A solid left-handed batsman and then there's a couple of really good openers as well so there's definitely prospects there but uh, just because you've not seen them in the Ranji Trophy yet at all um, I think it'll be more interesting to see how they do against you know better quality bowling So Habib, even before we get into the main, you know, crux of this episode, uh, there is something I want to very quickly get your thoughts on as much as it pains me to kind of go back into it. Uh, So recently, the India versus South Africa test series concluded in the favor of South Africans. And (laughs) as disappointing as it is uh, for me as an Indian cricket fan, um, about the result because I genuinely felt this was, you know, a very good opportunity for India to claim their maiden series win. Um, I take solace in the fact that it was uh, a well-fought series, you know, both sides, there was some exceptional cricket uh, and really, uh, you know, there were a couple of players I was really excited about from the South African side, uh, or Keegan Peterson and Marco Janssen. I think they've got great futures ahead of them. so what are you, what are what are your thoughts on the South African win? Thanks, Benny and Mike for, for having me. It's, it's great to be on again. Um, I think it was a fantastic series. Um, to be honest with you, after the first test or second test, when it came to the third one, it you know it could have gone either way, both for right. India or South Africa. Um, and I think it just came down to the crucial sessions from day three and day four, well, mainly day three of the last test, where we saw that South Africa was more in the driving seat. And, you know, the, the, the decisions that were unparalleled in the last test that many people are speaking about could have gone either way. You know, I mean, these kinds of things happens when it comes to decisions based on technologies that either support or doesn't support the umpire's call, etc. But I think if you have to look at it, 
from a macro level, um, I think this was probably India's best opportunity to win their first series in South Africa. Um, but then again, I think South Africa came out from their lull, um, for lack of a better word, over the years and came out and showed that, you know, we can still play test cricket, uh, you know, against India. So, I mean, South Africa comes from a point of view where they don't have the the greats of the last few years in the side, like Dale Stein, Hashim Amla, ABD Villiers, Fafta Plessis, et cetera, et cetera. Right. But we've got this newish kind of team and talent in Keegan Peterson and uh, Aidan Markram, and even with Quinton de Kock stepping down now, you know, Kyle Varane's come to the picture. So it's actually, it's, it's a positive sign for Mark Boucher and his team uh, to see, okay, well, what's working, what's not working, and how do they capitalize from the conference going forward? Um, Temba Bavuma was fantastic in the series, and he hasn't really been right. spoken much about, you know, having a, mm-hmm. having a couple of not outs and, uh, you know, averaging fantastically within the series and um, KG bowling extremely well and leading the pack with the other guys as well. So I think each each person on the South African team had contributed it, you know, in their own unique way. And I think when you packaged it together, you found that, you know, it was a great team effort. Where with India, you had great performances from KL Rahul or Pujara or Pent and Kohli, et cetera, or even some of the bowlers, especially with uh, Bumrah and Ashwin. But when you look at the package contributions, you then realize, okay, well, you know, contributing the team South Africa to come on the top, especially the last test match. So I, I, I thought this, you know, this could have gone either way. Uh, uh, but I think it was, the, the last test was based on a lot of luck as well. Um, but I think from a strategic perspective, I think South Africa did come out on top. Right. And a uh, special mention should also go to Dean Elgar. I thought he was a wonderful leader for the South Africans. And he played a huge part too, you know, with uh, his knock in the second innings and the second test. Mm-hmm. Um, but congratulations. Well-deserved. <laughs> and uh, I think it's a great sign for South African cricket, especially because there's been a lot of doom and gloom in the news um, over the last year or so. So it's good to see like on the field uh, that they still have it. You know, they're still very tough to beat in their backyard. Uh, So Habib, you know, for our listeners, obviously this is the second time that you're back on our show. So thank you for coming back on. Can you, could you give us a quick update on what we talked about last time? You know, we talked about the biomechanics of the backlift as well as a bat that you helped uh, create for young batters to get like the natural backlift. Uh, we understand there's been some progress on that. Could you give us an update? Thanks, Benny. Yeah, so look, I mean, this this project on the backlift has been fantastic and working with Professor Tim Noakes um, and Russell Holmer has been great. And, you know, the, the development of the coaching bat is almost seven years now. And right. for, over this time, we haven't really you know, uh, focused on it really frequently as much as we would have liked to. But um, over the years, we had, we needed three properties that was going to contribute to the success of this good product of a bat. And that was the weight. Um, It was the good material in terms of durability. And it was obviously the pricing to make it. And we had challenges over the years to find all three properties to make the bat. And now finally, we came across um, those three properties and it looks really promising. So we are in the process now of getting some samples of the bat and uh, making the final version of the final prototype of it. And our aim is to launch it um, in March. And uh, we can't reveal too much now, but as soon as we know a lot more, um, 
uh, we, we will definitely share that information with you and with your um, audience. And um, it's quite exciting because this bat is hopefully going to be a tool that's certainly going to assist cricketers in not just enhancing their performance, but even the biomechanics of their backlift. And we've seen that the biomechanics of the backlift specifically is a significant contributor to performance indicators, especially at junior cricket level. So if this tool can assist coaches as well as um, the coaching staff to help them with their team, then you know, we know that hopefully it can have an impact and a positive influence um, for, for young cricketers um, as they evolve into um, adolescent and elite cricketers going forward. That's exciting. And I do hope you will come back on you know, when, when you're ready to reveal more information and the bat is released. Uh, but let's talk about the paper um, that you authored. Is attending a boys-only school an incidental contributing factor to South African cricket success? Uh, I'm just curious about how you landed on the premise or what led you to conduct research on this topic? Right. So, I mean, the, it, it was a really interesting journey to having conducted this research because growing up in South Africa, being a South African, playing the game, coaching the game, and now being a scientist, all of the time we're hearing about inequality that's evolving in cricket. He, he was able to, you know, advance to the elite level because he went to a top school and he had the funding where X, Y, and Z had all the talent in the world but couldn't go because they never had the resources, et cetera. So there was a lot of assumptions being thrown out for over the years saying, well, if you look at the team, a lot of them went to private schools. If you look at the national team, a lot of them had the kind of resources infra infrastructure that propelled their success. But there wasn't really any data or supporting uh, data to quantify that kind of assumption. We are picked up the, this important research question was, you know, trying to use objective data to answer the question that has been largely based on assumption. Um, and then putting all that data through and the data collection process was one of the toughest in my career because I had to go through different archives and South African archives and manuals and different articles and packaging them together and saying, okay, well, what is the information there? I mean, trying to find out, I mean, the, the key thing that I needed to find out is all the cricketers, all the South African cricketers since readmission from 1992 till mm -hmm. 2019, where did they go to high school? And some of them, some of that data was not available in the archives of the, 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 the data sets that I looked into. So I was calling people, where did he go to school? I was calling this one, where did he go? Can you, can you give me some sort of um, affirmation that that is correct? You know, so that was the hardest part is getting the high schools for every single player who played for South Africa at the test ODI T20 level and then studying that and then analyzing that. So there hasn't really been a paper that quantified that assumption in South Africa since readmission. And that's how I arrived at uh, doing this particular study two years ago, two to three years ago, yeah. That would have been an interesting phone call where you're asking, uh, hey, where did this person go to school? <laughs> <laughs> No, it was. I mean, I, I look, I gave them a, the context and the background to what I was investigating. And they said they actually appreciate that I'm doing it and they would be very interested to see what the results is. Uh, one of the guys um, uh, was actually really keen and, and, and happy because he wrote on this uh, subject uh, for, for, for quite a while. Um, so, yeah, for, fortunately, the response was optimistic and they were quite helpful. 
All right. So before we get into the research, um, maybe help us just get the context of South African schooling system, uh, particularly the different, uh, you know, groupings, uh, as well as, you know, what percentage of South African boys go to boys only schools. Right. So, so in South Africa, we've got uh, quintiles one to five. So quintiles one would represent your poorer category of schools in South Africa. And then quintiles five would represent the less poorer schools or the more wealthier schools in South Africa. So quintiles four and five traditionally would be like your private schools or your boys only schools, a vast majority, I can't say all of them. And then quintiles one to three would be more on the poorer working class schools within those particular areas. So that's basically what, what we have. So when we're looking at co-ed schools, which are mainly government schools, those would be between quintiles one to three. And then quintiles four and five would be your private uh, or boys only schools, um, where they are more of the wealthier schools that have different resources and infrastructure, et cetera. So that's the uh, that's that's the that's basically what the quintiles is within South Africa, and there's a low percentage of of of, of cricketers who do go to boys only schools, largely because a vast majority of boys only schools who then fall within those quintiles four and five, and you know most of them still follow the elitist model of school cricket, you know boys only schools and private schools. So a lot of your you know we speak about those how all the successful South African cricketers came from your top 40 to 50 schools, a vast majority of them still have those traditional practices and cultures uh, based on the elitist model or having uh, an influence from uh, you know, British uh, influence or the Victorian age. Um, you know, so, I mean, we can address that a bit later, but that's basically the kind of landscape and the context around uh, the cricket schools within South Africa between quintiles one and quintiles five. So it's, it's fair to say then that um, the boys only schools generally had better infrastructure, just better culture on creating cricketers. And, um, you know, that definitely is probably one of the, you know, key considerations that you were looking in. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, I mean, that's, that was one of the key rationales behind doing the study is because it was logically assumed over the years that now they, they went to a boys only school. That's why they were able to play for South Africa. Well, we can't generalize like that, but we had to then go investigate. So what we can say is that a vast majority of the boys only schools do then have your key resources and infrastructure. So, um, and we're going to link your paper um, on our website and our podcast page. And one of the tables in your paper, uh, you know, it shows that between 1994 and 2019, um, about 92.3 percent, that is 24 out of 26 schools, uh, cricket captains attended boys only schools. And this, you know, it says that this suggests that co-ed public schools alone have not been the optimal or preferred feeder system to produce as many South African schools cricket captains. And I was just trying to figure out what is the standout reason for this, because it could be a couple of different things, right? It could be a lack of focus on developing leadership skills in co-ed schools. Um, because again, if you're talking about the wealth disparity in probably lower income or you know less wealthier schools, that is not really their top priority. Um, or is it just a case of bias towards boys only schools? Because there is this implicit thing that, oh, well, if they are, you know, coming up in this kind of 
culture or in this kind of a system, they are ready. They are fit to lead. So uh, have you found anything to suggest which way it goes? So scientifically, there isn't really a reason to explain that stat of 24 out of 26 school cricket captains. But okay. to answer your question, there's a myriad of factors that are involved. Um, you know, one could assume that uh, these boys who are in these schools from, from the younger grades are cultivated with good leadership skills and uh, have some good role models and um, understand the nature of good captaincy skills with their coaches and maybe the influence of good coaching in these schools influences good captains and so when they go for trials um, when they go and play for the SES schools team or the South African 19 team they find these um, values or um, these kind of uh, skills within certain players that would portray a very good cricket captain uh, you know so that's one theory is is basically the the, the, the foundation that is being placed uh, within those schools to create these kind of leaders, these young league, uh, leading cricket captains. On the other hand, one could even assume, especially within the South African system, that you know, we find a lot of these schools still today being feeder schools to produce provincial cricketers. You know, in South Africa, we call it provincial. It could be state to county in other countries. So they would be feeder schools to these provincial or district teams and then from there they could even be feeder schools to your national selection at the under 19 team so one would possibly ask the question whether the selection team for these particular young cricketers are they also coaching at these schools or are they also administrators at these schools to identify these particular players as young captains um, and i mean i mean someone would you know, answer that question here in South Africa from a political perspective, and then bring in some other aspects in terms of nepotism or unfairness or whatever. So I wouldn't want to really go into that too deeply, but that could be one explanation. But I would rather be of the opinion that the these particular schools that are producing these young cricket captains um, have the good foundation, education, and, and leadership foundations um, that enable these young cricketers to be good leaders and, and, and good young cricket captains within South Africa. So the key question then is, how, do, how are we able to lay the slate on a more equal basis? How, in future, how are we able to say, okay, well, what about uh, getting cricket captains from outside of these private schools or boys-only school systems? What about those cricketers who are coming from the co-ed environment, your quintiles one to three, how are we able to install better leadership qualities among them so that they can become future South African schools captains or South African under 19 captains? Um, and I think that's something that we need to look into. We can't really cast a view on these particular 40 to 50 schools and saying, ah, our next South Africa under 19 or schools captain is gonna come from these schools. We've got to cast the net a lot wider. And I think, uh, I think the reason maybe why they haven't really cast the net a lot wider is because they may be feeling that the leadership qualities outside of these 50 schools may not be the same. But again, that is an assumption. And you'll be surprised at the amount of good cricket captains you have that come outside of these 40 to 50 schools. Now, as an example, when I played schools cricket, I went to a co-ed school. I didn't go to a boys only or to a private school. Could that be one of the reasons why I didn't play at an elite level? Perhaps. Um, the other reason could be is that I had a straight backlift. 
I couldn't go to the elite level. Um, <laughs> the, the third level, the third reason could be I just wasn't good enough. And I think that's more of the, of the, of the, the real reason. But when I played school cricket, I was first team captain. But we never had any scouts coming to our, our matches or to our teams, uh, you know, right. to go to the provincial kind of tryouts or South African tryouts kind of thing. So why, are, why is talent development not as widely recognized beyond those 50 schools that we speak about? Why aren't these scouts going beyond those 50 schools that we speak here about? Um, and I think it, it comes to one word and that's trust. I think within the South African grassroots system, I don't think there's a lot of trust within the system to go beyond the 50 schools because they know if they go out, they may not find what they might be looking for. But some selectors have been surprised, pleasantly surprised. They, they found a fantastic talent and brought him in. But the key question is, what about a talent that can also be a captain outside right. of those 50 schools? Uh, so I think that's basically the possible reasons. But scientifically, we haven't really... Um, identify that and uh, I think it might be another good research question for my master's student maybe uh, he can do that <laughs> next year <laughs> and I, I guess the one other thing that comes to mind is I know your research was focused on school captains but is there have you looked at all at the domestic structure are domestic teams also set up in a similar way where uh, you know captains from um, private schools or, or uh, boys only schools are getting more chances so I was only able to look at the um, school or under 19 captains on the South African international level, uh, but provincially I wasn't really able to go that deeper. Uh, but again, one would assume that a lot of these captains would also be coming from your private or uh, boys only school environment. Um, I mean, I take the, the three massive provinces in South Africa in terms of space, Gauteng, Western Cape and KwaZulu Natal, um, you know, I can tell you now how Teng, a lot of the captains, not all, but a lot of the captains would either come from King Edward, um, they'd go to, um, uh, sorry, I'm losing my <laughs> the train of thought now, but King Edward or St. John's or St. Scythians, uh, you know, one of those schools. And in KwaZulu Natal, they might go to Durban High School or they go to Hilton or Peter Maritzburg. And in the Western Cape, they'll probably go to uh, Bishops or they go to Rondebosch or Weinberg Boys or South African college, college schools, et cetera. So, these are the most, these, these are the common school names that we always hear about. You know, I mean, they talk about, you know, Gary Kirsten came from uh, Rondebosch, Jack Cullis came from Weinberg, Herschel Gibbs came from Bishops, Hashim Amla came from Durban High School, um, you know, and we can go on. Um, so one would be able to postulate or assume that even at the junior provincial levels, captains may also be coming from these provincial, uh, from these private or boys only schools as well. But we would also be pleasantly surprised that some of the provincial captains who also come also come from co-ed schools. Um, and even at the uh, at the franchise level, you know, I mean, the, the similar uh, level in terms of county or state level that we have here, which is beyond school level, some of them also come from co-ed schools. But I think Across the landscape, a vast majority would come from your private or boys-only schools. Um, fascinating. I, I think um, the one other item that sort of comes to mind is, you know, South Africa's similarity to England and New Zealand in terms of the fact that cricket isn't the most popular sport. Um, and again, it's, it's due to a number of things. Obviously, cricket requires a little more infrastructure, a little more initial investment. To play as compared to something like soccer in England or, or 
um, you know, rugby in, in South Africa. Um, so how does that impact the, the cricketers South Africa produces? That's a fascinating question. I mean, and, you know, you talk from a resource or an equipment perspective where rugby or um, football may not require as much compared to cricket, especially for batters, right? I mean, they need a whole kit bag of different things. And that was one of the assumptions we've had all those years is that maybe South Africa, so South Africa is producing much better fast bowlers of color compared to batters of color, uh, but particularly not just players of color, but even particularly bowlers who are black African versus batters who are black African. And that's why Temba Bavuma is such a fantastic role model because he came out and showed to be the first black African player to score a test entry for South Africa. And now he's inspired so many people in, in, in the Langa, in Kailicha, in all the township uh, areas and communities within South Africa. Whereas now we have um, great role models like Tokiso Rabada, um, who is a fast bowler. Well, he's a premier fast bowler for South Africa, but we've also had other black African fast bowlers before, Gagey, like Makai Ntini, uh, Ingham, Zondeki, et cetera, et cetera. And we find that why aren't there as sufficient amount of black African batters? And so there was different research questions being thrown out as to what would be the reasons. And one of the reasons, again, could be is that there would be a lack of equipment or resources they didn't have to train to be a better, but instead they would rather train to be a bowler because you put on your shoes and bowl, or some of them won't even have shoes. They'll just run barefoot and, and you know, bowl the ball. Um, the other aspect is because from a genetic perspective, in terms of speed, in terms of running, and in terms of power, bowling is a lot more correlated to that kind of skill compared to anticipation and anticipatory skills of an oncoming ball or um, anticipating the trajectory of a different delivery. So that, that was another question in the mix. And then another interesting correlation, which uh, hasn't really been proven, but um, in, in the African culture, a mother's child wear their kids on their back. So, um, you know, a lot of the time you'll find that babies are being carried in front or in their pouches in modern times or, but, in many decades ago, until now, still even in the township communities, the mothers would wrap a towel around their, uh, from the front or two around their backs, and their, their babies will lie in almost like a pouch at the back of them while they're actually doing domestic work or while whatever they're doing. And they would just, you know, stay on their mom's backs wrapped around this towel or wrapped around a sheet. And one of the theories that came from this is that because they, uh, they're behind their mom's backs, they can only look left and they can look right. And it, it delays their vision from looking forward. And so the, their development in terms of vision going forward actually prevents them from anticipation skills or spatial awareness as they grow up when they're a child. So that was a possible That's hypothesis or theory, but, <laughs> but it hasn't really been proven. Right, um, and that's why when they grow up, they, they instead they have great skill in terms of running speed or throwing speed, uh, uh, or even in terms of soccer in South Africa is a lot more. There's a lot more participation among Black Africans and even in rugby compared to as cricket. I mean, cricket is starting to improve now; it's increasing now, but it's not as much compared to soccer and rugby. So to come back to that question, there's an acronym that I've developed which is called Chef. Um, C-H-E-F. And, and the main factors that could contribute to why there's not as many, you know, uh, compared to, you know, the likes of New Zealand or England, etc., is the C stands for the standard of coaching. 
And we're finding that in boys only schools and in private schools, there's a big difference in terms of coaching. So the one question there would be, why isn't there great coaching in the township level? Well, it could be a number of reasons. It's, it's safety going into the township area. Those great coaches may not want to go into those areas because of safety, or they're getting better paid at the private schools or at the boys only schools. So their salaries are better. So coaching, the standard of coaching is, is the, was the first one. Then the H letter uh, basically stands for housing. So the closer the players are situated to stadiums or facilities or to the cities, the more acquainted they are able to be with uh, participation, training, um, getting mentorship, looking at other players and you know, drawing good examples and skills, being closer to certain areas where their cricket can be optimized. Um, so, so housing is, is, a, is a very important one because what we find, especially when I was playing, a lot of the township cricketers had to take three taxis, public taxis, and get to the get to the ground, or they'll have to to have a lift club and go to a certain ground. So, housing and location plays a huge role, especially within the South African context. And then the E letter basically stands for equipment, and uh, we just touched that on now that batters most of the time require more equipment than bowlers. You know when 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 I, when I was coaching a developmental team, when I was still a student, when I went to the school who didn't really have the facilities, there was one kit bag being shared among 11 players. You go to the boys only schools or private schools, every single player has their own kit bag. They've got their own bat, their own pads, their own gloves, et cetera. This team had one kit bag being shared among the entire team. And don't even question something about hygiene. They all shared the same ball box, right? They all wore the same gloves. They all wore the same helmet, even after they were sweating after it's being used by someone, right? So they're sharing the equipment. So equipment is, is a really important aspect um, because we know, in, you know, with cricket, especially for batting, equipment's not cheap anymore. I mean, bats these days are fantastic, but they come at a cost. And, uh, you know, so when it comes to basic needs within these township environments, their goal is for survival. Now, if they go to their parents and say they want a cricket bat. Some, to be honest with you, some cricket bats cost more than their parents' salaries. Yeah. So where are they going to afford equipment? So that's, the, so that's the third letter, that's E for equipment. And then the last one is F, and F is facilities. You know, when you go to these township schools or these rural areas or the you know marginalized communities, the facilities are not the same uh, compared to your boys-only schools or private schools that have been long-standing, even in South Africa's apartheid era. Uh, you know, decades before readmission into international sport, um, the facilities are fantastic. Um, some of them even have indoor cricket uh, centers within the schools. They've got um, cricket grounds with floodlights. Um, you know, compared to the township areas where the grass is is not uh, is not uh, maintained as well because of finances. So finances is being the main factor in terms of why facilities are either not upkept or why it's not the same compared to your private or boys only schools. So, so, so the chef concept is something that I just came up with within South Africa, which is coaching, housing, equipment, and facilities, and. If, if Cricket South Africa and, and different organizations in private entities focus on that, on a long-term basis, we would start to see some good difference being made from the ground up. Now, 
some good mates of mine, KJ Rabada, Temba Bavuma, and Richard Bendel, have started a company called the Protea Fund. And they want to house cricketers from township areas and marginalized communities and help them become good cricketers, but also good people. And if they're students to, in a way they can also study at the same time. And we find that with these factors, they are taking these factors in terms of housing facilities and you know, equipment or you know, giving access to good coaching, um, you know, it will really assist them. These factors will really assist them in becoming not just a better cricketer, but a better person. And with that, we also find that cricketers who have some assistance in terms of longevity, when I speak about longevity, I'm talking about training in terms of fitness, nutrition, um, uh, psychology of cricket and mindset, um, you know, uh, having mentorship, all of those factors play a big role. And, and private schools and boys-only schools have capacities for that. Township schools, they just have a coach. They don't really have the expertise to assist them with these kinds of um, expertise as well from a nutritional, fitness, sports science, um, psychology perspective. So, you know, so I think that, so, so the Protea Opportunity Fund is one of the first initiatives I know of in South Africa that are trying to focus on this, especially from a housing perspective to assist um, young and up and coming cricketers, especially coming from rural areas or townships and um, so that they can be housed closer towards the stadiums or to cities or to universities where transport and accommodation may not be as a challenge for them. And that's something which is really admirable. So, um, so to answer your question, you know, it's such, it's, it's such a holistic approach that one needs to take when it comes to really understanding how to contribute towards challenges being faced in South Africa. I mean, we've got 60 million people in South Africa. Um, and a lot of people will say, yeah, South Africa has got a lot of areas that are poor. I mean, we've got a lot of parts within South Africa but are, that are poor. But similarly to India, South Africa is not a poor country. South Africa and India are rich countries with a lot of poor people that are not being seen to. And so we've got a similar issue in challenge here within South Africa. And the more organizations we have that can see to these particular factors, like the chef um, approach that I mentioned, the better we will be able to develop cricketers within the next five to 10 years. Fascinating answer, Abib. And, and, and the reason I, I really enjoyed that answer was not just because of the key four factors that you mentioned, but the way you looked at bowling versus batting and the anticipatory skill. Um, I've never thought about it that way. And I, in, in a sense, like a lot of these um, trends that end up happening in any country, whether it's related to sport or even otherwise, you know, uh, they are they are because of a number of these different factors and each of them contributes in some way, some more, some less. Um, so it's great to that, you know, we, we think about it holistically and, and, you know, wrap our minds around it because obviously like the four key factors will help, but at the same time, there's probably some uh, reasons uh, just like how Jamaican athletes have a wider base, which helps them just run faster. It's just, it's just a, you know, a, a thing that is local to that country, uh, which helps them produce a certain type of athlete more. Um, so, and I think you kind of touched upon this, but my next question was going to be around, uh, you know, just programs which are taking these resources down to town. In India, there was the talent resource development wing uh, developed in early 2000s, and a number of the cricketers 
who played since, including MS Dhoni, Suresh Raina, Piyush Chavla, all of them came through that. Um, so you mentioned that there's uh, one or two such initiatives, but those seem to be more on, uh, you know, with the help of players like Rabada. Uh, there is there anything from Cricket South Africa perspective that's happening? Um, or is that still sort of in maybe development or in initialization? It is. I mean, Cricket South Africa are doing quite a number of initiatives and programs uh, focused on the grassroots level. I think a lot of the concerns that the South African society have is what is the speed of implementation of these programs and how really far wide are they casting the net with these initiatives? You know, so Cricket South Africa are focusing on these kind of programs, but I think the concern is the lack of implementation speed to help as many cricketers as possible within South Africa might be the concern. Uh, but you, you know, in the past, we had something called Baker's Mini Cricket, uh, where Baker sponsored uh, an initiative where young cricketers can go out and play cricket and to, uh, you know, sponsor the ethos of active play, uh, winning nation, active nation. And now we've got a, they, they have a different sponsor now, which is now called KFC Mini Cricket. So KFC is behind that. Um, so there is initiatives like that, like mini cricket and, um, you know, different types of initiatives to encourage not just cricket participation, but um, sports in general, even if it's soccer or rugby or hockey or netball or, you know, in any other sport. So we have these kinds of initiatives and, um, and they are doing it. But I think that the complexities that we're finding within South Africa as compared to India I mean, India, we have, you know, what, 1.2, 1.3 billion people. So it's incomparable to South Africa's population, you know, and one would say, well, why isn't South Africa getting it right with a vastly lower population size? And to answer the question is, we're one of the very few countries that have a diverse racial group within South Africa. You know, we've got uh, Black Africans, we've got Caucasians and Europeans, we've got Indians, we've got um, coloreds, uh, colored people, and we've even got uh, Chinese, Asian people. So we, we're very diverse and multicultural. And that's, that, that is the richness of our, of our nation, South Africa, is our cultural and uh, racial diversity. Now, when you compare it to India, it's not necessarily about race, but it's more about sects and classes and hierarchies and those kinds of things. So, you know, so they, they go into various townships and whoever is tempted can come in. But now in South Africa, there's so much of emphasis that's been placed on transformation that they want to transform the national side and they want to transform, you know, but and, and my thing is if, if a transformation shouldn't happen at the elite level, you got right. to focus on development at the grassroots level. Because if you can get the grassroots level right and get as many players to, to, to start playing and trying to label the playing field in terms of uh, having the chef approach to many more schools than just those 30 to 40 schools, then we're doing something right. Then we're starting to see transformation. But if you think transformation is having players of color within a national team, um, and then you think you're achieving transformation, it's not, it's not, it's not just like that. You've got to do a, a lot more to achieve something which is known as transformation. So I think that's the complexities that we have within South Africa is, you know, because of the of our, you know, of our turbulent past and, and you know, with apartheid and how divided we are as a society, how unequal we are in many parts of South Africa and the racial diversities that we have within South Africa. We're finding that these complexities, despite our lower population size, it is having an impact in terms of the speed of 
transformation and adoption within these communities that need to be transformed from a chef perspective. Um, so that's that's how I could answer your question. And uh, you know, I think the speed of implementation and adoption needs to be improved, um, not just with Crickets Africa, but other programs as well. Look, they're doing a fantastic job. They're doing a great job. But I think the speed of implementation is, is, is a concern. And I think with COVID-19, because of social distancing protocols and that, that has been slowed down as well. Um, but I think the more entities and organizations we can get on board to focus on the chef approach, um, the better we will see the transformation that we need at the grassroots level and not necessarily at the international level. Right, and I, I feel that a lot of organizations, whether it's you know sports organizations, they always feel the need to change at the top, and that inspiring for somehow inspiring a lot of you know young cricketers or young uh, athletes to take up the sport. Uh, but I think that's that's where they get it wrong because there's been a lot of research on how grassroots is the way to you know you have to build a sport up. And um, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more that, you know, if somebody in a small township looks at Temba Bohuma and gets inspired, they may not get very far if they don't have the facilities. So, so it's great to, you know, blood talent at the top level, but it's not a long-term approach. I'm, I'm curious if you can speak to the, this particular thing. You know, you kind of mentioned about how someone like Temba Bohuma it has inspired, you know, completely a new set of, you know, young black kids to dream big. Uh, and you talked about all the different initiatives, you know, from the cricketer side, from the side of Cricket South Africa. Um, but how much of it is also the interest shown by young South Africans or young disadvantaged or uh, young people who don't have as many opportunities in life? Um, you know, someone like Keegan Peterson said he was inspired by Balguma. So do you, do you see that interest among South African youngsters to look at cricket as a potential stepping stone for success in society? Absolutely. Um, I think despite the uh, influence we have with digital technology, social media, mobile devices among the youth that's increasing and even child obesity with gamification, I still, I think we, we're still seeing that sport as a whole is still a stepping stone for hope, stepping stone for them to be not just um, looking at sport as an opportunity, but even being becoming better scholars or better people. Uh, so, so we're starting to find that that it's that's still the case within South Africa, and uh, it may it may not just be with with cricket, uh, but even with with a lot of sport. I mean. We look at rugby as an example and how Sia Kolisi has been a fantastic role model to many young and up-and-coming rugby the youth. Uh, we have the, you know, we have the likes of Tema Babuma, Kakhiso Rabada, Lungi Ngidi, Andile Fehlukwayo, um, Sia Kolisi, uh, Mapimpi. We have, we have all of these players who are being such fantastic role models um, to, you know, to, to young children within South Africa. You know, and, and to the audience, excuse me, I may only be giving examples of, of black African sportsmen, but even players of color, even, even Caucasian players, you know, everyone have been a fantastic example to, 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 to various, um, you know, young kids growing up in South Africa. So to answer your question, Benny, um, sport as a whole is still a fantastic stepping stone for hope and for success um, uh, towards uh, young players within South Africa. And, you know, they, they, it's very simple. They see, if he can do it, I can. And uh, 
maybe some players like Makai Ntini and Mpuneku Ngum and Zondeki have had maybe tougher journeys or roads to get to the elite model, model compared to other players. We don't know. Everyone's circumstances are different. The, the mere fact is that if they can do it, the children believe that they can too. Um, so if there, there are beacons of hope, there are beacons of light in a country where there's so much of despair, um, these are the unsung heroes of society. And sport is one of those social institutions that just galvanizes these lenses of hope when so many things that they're going through in their township or their community uh, seem so bearing. You know, these are the kinds of things that allow them to keep on. You know, so we need to really cherish the likes of these role models uh, who are playing cricket for South Africa or rugby for South Africa or football or swimming or even the Olympics and the Paralympics because one shouldn't underestimate the impact that they have on young kids. Uh, and not just within South Africa, you talk about India, the impact that MS Dhoni, Vera Kohli, um, mm. Sachin Tendulkar, and all of these players have had, and even Raul Dravid now being head coach of India, have all had among players within India, uh, you know, even players in Pakistan, in the West Indies, you know, we speak about Calypso cricket and the Jamaican uh, athlete model, you know, so even within the West Indies um, and other countries, you know, so um, it's still a stepping stone. And I think there's so much that, that we can learn from them. And um, I think it's only a matter of time before we start to see more successful cricketers in South Africa coming from these township areas and underprivileged communities. Um, I, I completely agree with you, you know, where sport across countries, you know, wherever it may be, can throw up role models who can go beyond the sport and be an inspiration for youngsters. I mean, I, I read about Lungi Ngiri's initiative where he was an ambassador um, to promote, I think it was against violence against women, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so something like that, you know, to see a sports person who is well loved, well respected, and using his platform uh, to promote awareness and to educate. Um, I mean, if they can do that, that's that that really is inspiring. So not just in sport, but in all walks of life. So that is that that is really amazing. Now I know in your paper you focus on boys only school, and uh, obviously we don't have much data. I'm assuming about women or girls, um, but can you speak anything to how this may correlate uh, with uh, girls and women in the South African cricket system? Yeah, I think, look, it's, it's still a little bit early to comment on, 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 the, on female participation um, at the junior level in South Africa. I think the reason why, we were, why I was able to do this paper for boys only schools cricket in South Africa is because I had data since 1992. Um, you know, so it was spanning almost 30 years that we were able to see what is the consensus. And now with female cricket just being recently introduced over the last five to seven years, um, especially on the international stage, um, I think we still need a little bit more data to gauge what is the kind of situational analysis in terms of air schooling. But one would also, I think, similarly hypothesize that even with female cricketers, or even female athletes or, or sportswomen, um, they have also, um, got a vast majority of them who are successful may have also come from private schools or boys only schools. And um, 
you know, it's 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 such. A, I mean, the, the the female cricket, you know, just as a whole, is such an interesting phenomenon because they they because of their their different physical and physiological makeup, the way they are identified in terms of talent and skill is so interesting. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they can whether they batters, uh, whether they bowlers, or you know whether they fielders. It's really interesting. So one would hypothesize that there would be a similar finding. But I think it's important to, to look into that. Um, one of my master's students now is going to look at the biomechanics of batting techniques among female cricketers in South Africa. We want to understand what's what's the different makeup there. You know, what's what's making what what are the factors making female batters successful, and what can we learn from female batters that we haven't learned from um, from male batters and it's interesting now we can't say batsmen anymore we have to say batters uh, you know so <laughs> that's right so so i mean yeah so i mean things are, are changing for uh, for for the good way and um, um another PhD student of mine he's looking at exploring the support systems that have contributed towards athletes representing south africa at the olympic games that have come from marginalized communities so he wants to see what were the factors that helped them represent South Africa at the Olympic Games, but they came from a township or a marginalized area. So Mr. Solomon in Tombeni is looking at all the Olympic codes um, that is going to explore these support systems. So although my paper has focused on cricket, one also asked the question on radio, when I was on radio two years ago, they said, well, what's the case around rugby, soccer, and hockey? And I said, I don't know. You know, we can assume so much, but we just don't know. So, right. you know, we need to start investigating these questions even more. And Mr. Mtumbeni will be investigating these as well. Um, he's using something which is called the SPLIS model. And the SPLIS model looks at nine factors and pillars that contribute towards successful sports support systems for athletes, ranging from facilities, infrastructure, funding, um, scientific and research services, uh, a vast myriad of pillars that contribute to an athlete's success. Um, and he's interviewing both the coaches and the athletes that went to Olympics to uh, do, do represent South Africa and from marginalized communities. So I can't wait for him to finish his PhD because then we'll know even more. And then we'll get more information in terms of what really makes an athlete in general successful from a South African perspective. And those findings may could be replicated to other African countries, you know, like Uganda Mayank, you know, or like um, any other countries or uh, even in uh, overseas and uh, looking at uh, low resource communities there as well. So Habib, you, you talked about, you know, what some of your students or others may be working on, uh, but for you, you know, you have a you did a PhD on the biomechanics of the backlift. Uh, now this paper on you know the correlation between attending boys-only school and South African cricket success. What is next from you uh, on any specific cricketing topic that you're looking into? Yeah, I think I think for me it's for me it's I don't want to cast the light on me anymore. For me, my duty now is to empower others and to and to kind of show them the light. And you know, I okay. want to put a lot of effort and insight into the postgraduate students that I work with. I don't call them my students, I call them my collaborators because they're <laughs> professionals in their own life. And I know that through through their expertise, we will be able as a team, we'll be able now to um, obtain further insight into these different questions we have within cricket, whether it's about looking at the biomechanics of batting techniques among female, uh, female batters 
or looking at other factors supporting athletes that make them successful. Um, you know, I mean, sorry, another project that we looked into now, which is really important for me as well, is uh, understanding the correlation between performance metrics and mental health among cricketers. Hmm. So, Mr. is looking into, he's, he's, he's investigating cricketers at the cricket club level to see the impact that maybe COVID-19 may have had. But he's looking at, he's got mental health questionnaires that they're answering. And then he is also doing physical fitness tests with them. And then we're going to draw correlations to see, is there a relationship between how they perform versus what their mental health um, um, situation is? Because mental health in sport now is, is, is huge. And I think 2022 is the year where a lot more awareness is going to be cast on mental health um, for any sport. And I think in cricket specifically, uh, we're going to find a lot more research within the mental health perspective because there has been so much of debilitating effects and after effects that have culminated from COVID-19 that we forget about the athletes of what they're going through in terms of preparation, training, uh, resting periods, um, injuries uh, during COVID, not being able to go to the gym. These bio bubbles in cricket, what effect those do bio bubbles have among cricketers? You know, so... For me, that's that's what interests me now is 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 the current times of what's happening with cricketers right now. I mean, we can always focus on the performance aspects of cricket and the biomechanics and the psychology and the brain behind cricket. But what about the psychology and the um, the, the the social aspects of cricket uh, that are affecting cricketers at all levels? And I think that's something that we that we also need to to focus on now. So I think. Uh, that that's where the the cricket research for me and the team is right now. Uh, but I've also got a very um, a curious, curious interest with healthcare technology because um, uh, healthcare technology is where a lot of things are now going forward. Now uh, we're learning a lot, as I said, in terms of mental health, but we're also now even learning even more in terms of preventative health showing that if your immunity was better, you could have had less uh, severe effects when, when it came to COVID. Uh, you know, so healthcare technology, how can it help people be more healthier, increase the quality of life, um, improve uh, various types of health, healthy behaviors. Um, you know, so that's also really important to, to consider. Well, there are so many exciting avenues that we could explore and understand in cricket and beyond. So Habib, as always, thank you so much for coming on our show and talking about these things. And I'm sure, uh, you know, our listeners just like, you know, me and mine, you know, find this very informative and very helpful. And please do come back when uh, you and your team of collaborators or send some of them our way. And uh, we'll always be happy to talk to them about their findings. I certainly will. Thanks, Benny. I appreciate this, this talk. Thanks, Mike. Um, it's always great to chat to you guys and uh, really appreciate it. And I look forward to the next one. And that's a wrap for this episode of The Last Wicket. Thanks again to Habib for coming on and enlightening us on an important issue in South African cricket. You can find him on Twitter at Habib underscore Nurbai. And don't forget to check out the paper he published we have included the link in our show notes, or you can also find it at thelastwicket.com. Once again, check out our nomination at sportspodcastawards.com and give us a vote if you are so inclined. And if you enjoy this podcast, do let a friend know, 
rate and subscribe on your platform of choice. Follow us on your social media feeds and leave us a voice message if you would like to share your thoughts with us. Thank you again for listening. And from all of us here at The Last Wicket, stay safe and stay healthy.